HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Today, my guest is Reem Cassis. She's a Palestinian writer and author of the James Beard-nominated cookbook, The Palestinian Table. The book was endorsed by Anthony Bourdain and was one of NPR's best books of 2017. It was a winner in the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards and won the Guild of Food Writers' First Book Award 2018. Welcome to the show, Reem. Thank you, Sarah. It's nice to be here. And it's it's so nice to have you here, and it's such a special treat to have you in studio, too, because I know you came all the way from Philly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which is, you know, not so far away, but... And you have two kids. I mean, even two blocks is... Oh, yeah. 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 Well, okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. And we'd love to woo you with pizza to make it worth your trip and make you come back. <laughs> but Philly has really good food, too. It does. I was there just a few weeks ago. And, of course, we were just talking about our, our mutual friend, Mike Salamanoff, and of I... Of course. I ate all the things that he makes... There's a lot of places to choose from, yeah? Yeah. I went to his new place, Goldie's. Mm-hmm. That was some of the best waffle I've I've had in the United States, I would say, for sure. Um, well, we're going to be talking about your book, The Palestinian Table, which is sitting right in front of me and is beautiful. Um, and I love how you... Well, you have such an interesting story, so I'd love to just kind of start with that and how so much of your story is woven into the recipes um, and provides a context for the cookbook. So mm-hmm. let's, I guess, start at the beginning. You're you're born and raised in Jerusalem? I was. I was born there. Uh, my parents are actually not from Jerusalem. My mother is from the Triangle, which is in the center of the country, and she's a Muslim. My father is from the north, and he's a Christian. So they were in Jerusalem for work and... Uh, I ended up growing in, I guess, what you could call a melting pot of cultures, even within a single country, just from the different villages and religions and whatnot. But 
I ended up moving to the U.S. when I was 17 to do my undergrad. And I spent five years there. I did my undergrad, did uh, my MBA straight after, went back, started working in consulting, and food was as far away from my mind as possible. I mean, if anything, I had vowed never to end up in the kitchen. Yeah, I read that. Um, Let's backtrack a little bit Mm -hmm. and just talk about what was... I guess that melting pot experience like for you growing up in Jerusalem and having, um, you know, exposure to lots of different kinds of food and, and how, how did cooking play a role in your, in your upbringing and even within your family? I think for Palestinians in general and a lot of other cultures, you come together over food. So every Friday we would be at my maternal grandmother's house and the whole family would come together. We would eat lunch cooking would be an entire production with the kids running around the kitchen and the women cooking. And it was the same at my uh, paternal grandparents' house. You know, it was different holidays that we celebrated in each place. But you also, I took all of this stuff for granted. You know, it was only when I left that I got to see it in perspective to see that all this stuff makes up a Palestinian kitchen and a Palestinian culture, if you will. Growing mm-hmm. up to me, okay, this is food. This is These are my grandparents. This is home. This is what we eat. But when you leave, you take a step back and you see how all of it comes together to shape a food culture, if you will. Sure. And probably how it impacted you and was just such an important it, part of like who you were as a person. It must have been so important, such a big part of me, because I missed it so much when I left. Yeah. And I craved that connection. I became very nostalgic. And that grew to much larger levels once I had my own children, mm-hmm. which, again, precipitated this book. Right. Um, when you left and you were, I think, only 17 and you came to university. Why were you so determined and adamant that you were not going to end up in the kitchen? I think there are stereotypes that you hear from other people that you might read about, that you might encounter in your own life. And one instance for me was hearing someone say, my father had proudly told them that, you know, my daughter, she got into UPenn and she's going to the U.S. to study. And someone goes, why are you going to spend all that money sending her to university? She's going to end up in the kitchen anyway. Wow. And it's, you know, it was just an acquaintance, not someone even from the family, but the fact that there were people who still thought that way or felt that way just kind of gave me the motivation to prove them wrong. Did most people or, or men feel that way? I don't think so, but I think it's something that people say sometimes in passing without thinking about the effect it might have. It's it's a stereotype at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether you believe it or not, it's things that people might have in their mind, but it's not true because I look at all my cousins and my relatives and everyone's educated and all the women work, but some stereotypes persist. And to me, it was just a matter of breaking down those stereotypes if... You know, and uh, I did not want to end up in the kitchen. Even my mother growing up, if I came into the kitchen, she would say, just go, focus on your studying. You know, the kitchen is not for you. And even when I mentioned this book the first time around that I'm thinking of doing a cookbook, the initial reaction was, why? You went to business school. You have a successful career. Why would you step back from that and do this? And I think once they realized what it is, what it's doing for Palestinian people, for our culture across the world, I think they realized the merit in it. And sure you start to see that food is more than just food. It's not a life sentence, which is what I had perceived it to be initially. Understandably so. I used to look at the kitchen as a place where women ended up out of circumstance, not out of choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing more and more it's a choice that we can make through which we can even shape the future for our own children. Right. I think the difference is it's just a matter of making the choice for yourself, not feeling like it's something... That's forced on you. Exactly. So I think I had to go down that path of pursuing a business career and Mm -hmm. an education to realize that my heart is in the kitchen. I love this. It's such an integral part 
of who I am and of my culture. And if I have the ability to do this, then in a way I kind of owe it to my kids, to my people, to do this book, yeah. to spread the word. To You just needed the, the agency to come to that conclusion by yourself. Probably. <laughs> um, but even <coughs> while you were doing schools, I'm, schooling, you, I mean, you spent 10 years working towards your degrees and then you ended up working for some huge corporations. I mean, did you feel at any point that you had succeeded? Like you had proved your family wrong or not your family, but I guess the acquaintances. I mean, what, what was the feeling of uh, accomplishment at that point? I mean, I still remember my first job. I was working for a very big consulting firm where everyone in business school had wanted to get into that particular um, company. And I remember my first few weeks there, every time I would walk into the office and I would see the name, I would think, my God, I've made it. Mm-hmm. I, this is where I wanted to be. But I was sad. I wasn't happy. You know, I would see this thing that I've been working towards for years, but something felt missing. Wow, there's so much tension in that. And I think it's such a hard thing for a lot of people Mm -hmm. to feel like they're doing the thing they're supposed to be doing. And it's really, really hard to give that up. And it's scary. I mean, I was chasing someone else's version of success, not mine. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that every day now I wake up and I'm so confident of what I do. I question myself all the time. Well, I think as women, we tend I, to do that a lot as well. Humans, any humans, I would say. <laughs> yeah. But at least I'm doing something that I love doing. Yeah. You know, I see what my own daughters think of what I'm doing, and that's inspiring. Well, so let's talk about that shift that happened inside of you. Because, right. I mean, even though there was something clearly, you know, rumbling around in <laughs> right. there, there was some unhappiness or some something Dissatisfaction, that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what was it about having a child that made you say, or made you start really longing for, I guess, an outlet, like a more creative outlet, and Mm -hmm. you were able to connect that to to cooking? I think when I had my first daughter, a a part of me panicked because I felt, A, I was raising her abroad, away from her extended family with a very different upbringing from the one that I had. And I thought one of the best ways to keep her connected to her roots and her culture was to compile all our family's recipes and stories together. I didn't have an intention to do a cookbook initially. And it was only once I started compiling all of these stories and these recipes together and I looked at them as a whole, I thought, these are my family's recipes, these are my family's stories, but if you look at them as a whole, they're the story of every Palestinian family. And that was a narrative that we don't often hear when you think Palestinian. And I thought, I owe it to the world to share this. And maybe that's the role that I'm supposed to play. Maybe that's that thing that's been keeping me up at night that makes me feel a bit th- that something is missing that I need to work towards and I ended up everything that I put together I compiled it into a proposal send it to agents I mean I was new to this world I knew nothing about it yeah I read uh, a pretty amazing piece in the New York Times mm-hmm. that <laughs> um, <laughs> that talked about you and it didn't so much talk about your cookbook in the way you know a traditional review or anything like that but it talked about the fact that you approached creating a cookbook proposal without having any professional culinary (laughs) background, without having any writing experience, Mm -hmm. um, any publishing experience. You did not have a blog. You did not have like a massive Instagram following. I didn't even have an Instagram account. (laughs) You didn't have an Instagram account. And yet you weren't intimidated enough to put, to let those fears prevent you from doing something that you felt like you wanted to do. So the New York times wrote about that specifically that, you know, 
most people in their lives think about all the different reasons not to do something because they're scared, you know? And I thought about that too. Yeah. All the practical reasons we say, I would love to do this, but it's not realistic. So I'm not going to do that. Instead, you kind of looked at each obstacle and broke it down and thought about like how you could do one sort of small practical thing and then move to the next step. I mean, the New York Times obviously made it sound like it was very organized. And in it did hindsight, seem very organized. In hindsight, everything looks organized. Obviously, when I was going through the process, it wasn't as, you know, it says there that I would go to bookstores and I would look through the acknowledgement sections to see who the agents were. And that is true. I did that. But it would often be I'm taking my three-month-old out for a walk and I don't know what to do with her. So we'd walk into a bookstore. I'd flip through it. And one thing leads to another. And I think that's where my business experience came in very handy. Right. You know, my background's in business. It's in how do I sell something? How do I market myself to someone when I have no experience in writing, in publishing, in, in food, basically? And I think I had a good product. I, it came from the heart. It's honest. And that was, I think, what also resonated with a lot of people in the proposal. And I was meticulous about it. I really, I did my research. I mean, I, I would get a book of all the agents. I would Google everything about them, what books they'd done, their background. And I sent targeted emails to everyone. And it's hard work. It's not easy. You know, and when you look at a story, once it's happened, you think, oh, everything fell into place. But it takes a lot of work to do it. It just wasn't necessarily as calculated as the article made it seem. Yeah, but I mean, the article's very, it's accurate to an extent. But it's just, I want people to know that... Sometimes you don't see something while it's happening, but in hindsight, you see how every step you took along the way mm -hmm. made sense. So if you feel like you don't have it organized in your head what you need to do, don't be discouraged. I didn't have it organized in my head. But looking back on it for the New York Times, they are like, oh, this does fit into a pattern. But you see that pattern in hindsight. I loved that story. Yeah, I did too. It was one of my favorite ones out of all the coverage the book got. Yeah. I mean, I love that story about you. I love it. I mean, not as much as I love, like, the story <laughs> of your life and your journey and, like, why you were so inspired <coughs> to share, you know, the Palestinian table. But it's just such a great story that also came out of your book. And I hope it motivates people because it's hard. It's not easy to want to do something and to have all these fears and insecurities, but it's doable. If right. there's any takeaway from it is that you can do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the process like of writing your cookbook since, you know, you... <laughs> again, <laughs> had, had not done anything like that before and you hadn't worked in a kitchen or so published anything. Again, I was recently talking to my publisher. I signed the book deal in April and I submitted the manuscript in November, which is almost unheard of. I mean, that's within seven months. But in a way, I'd been doing research for this book my whole life. Mm -hmm. It was recipes that were in my family. I didn't need to go and meet people and get these recipes. It was literally what we ate at home. And I just had, and it was things I still cooked at home. I just had to retest them to make sure the ingredients were measuring up. It tasted the way I wanted it to. My mother was very helpful. I mean, she would test recipes for me and along with me. And it was very much a joint effort. So that was what the bulk of the, those seven months included. And then once you submit the manuscript, it's editing and going back and forth and figuring out how everything's going to fit into the book and writing your story and... It's just so apparent that you were meant to do this, just even like watching you right now and <laughs> listening to you talk about it. Like, I think this process for a lot of people is like extremely overwhelming and mm. arduous. And I'm sure it wasn't like a, a total breeze along the way, but it just seems like it was, it was truly inside of you. It was, I think I loved it. And when you love something, it becomes easier. I mean, back to that point, we moved across the world in the middle of those seven months. I had a newborn. 
That's insane. And, a <laughs> and you got it done in seven and months. I got it done in seven months. Which really <laughs> is unheard of. <laughs> and I, I mean, I really did get a lot of help from my mother, but part of it is also it's not typical that these are recipes that I've lived with, that I've grown up with. Obviously, if you have to travel to do your research, it takes longer. And, you know, if you're testing new recipes and you're tweaking them and getting them, these are recipes that work, that have worked for yeah. decades, centuries in some cases. So, Were you still re- working full-time while you were doing the proposal? No, okay. no, 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 I was not. I took time off when my first daughter was born. Mm-hmm. And again, that, of course, gets your brain thinking. You have time, and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Okay. I think most people, though, when they have a, a newborn child, don't feel like they have a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time to think when you're up breastfeeding at, like, 2 in the morning. And But, yeah, I know what you mean. Man, it's, women I feel really like I haven't slept in, in four charge. or five years, but... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Reem, we're going to take a quick break, hear from our sponsor. Keep listening. We'll be right back. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I am in studio with Reem Cassis. She is the author of The Palestinian Table, which is a beautiful cookbook that you should go out and buy immediately. Um, so we were just talking about the process of writing her proposal and getting her book published. So Reem, how did, how did your life change after you finished the proposal and the manuscript and then the book was a book? Day to day, my life didn't change that much other than, you know, there's the interview requests and articles that you write. But at the end of the day, I'm still doing what I did while I was working on the book, which is cooking for my family and testing recipes and things that I absolutely love to do. But since it's come out, I've also gotten to meet a lot of people. I've gotten to see just how much food can be powerful. And it takes... I've always believed that, but every time I have an experience that reaffirms that, it just helps me see that I did do the right thing by turning my back on my business career and focusing on this. Yeah, that that sort of nagging feeling of... There's something else I should be doing. Yeah, <laughs> you really felt like that was satisfied. and Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's it's a hard thing to do, especially because you are so determined in your mind not mm. to end up cooking again. So I can only imagine that that was a really tough decision in a lot of ways. And I continued to question myself. Mm. I mean, before the book came out, what am I doing? Is it the right thing? Uh, What is doing a cookbook going to do? But I realized what it's done for Palestinians in general. I mean, Palestinian cuisine is having its moment right now. And there's a lot of other Palestinian cookbooks coming out, Palestinian restaurants popping up, making it onto best restaurant food lists and 
it makes me proud to see my people recognized for something other than just the conflict that we've been so known for. Sure, for and you're a part of that. Um, so what are some of the hallmarks of Palestinian cuisine? I wrote about this in the book where I said, to me, Palestinian cooking is not just about the food. It's about that notion of home, that sense of generosity and wanting to feed people, to welcome them, but also bear in mind Palestinians are all over the world. Some of us by choice, other by circumstance. Some are refugees, some are immigrants. And I think it's the idea of Palestinian food, of a Palestinian table, bringing everyone together. That's what connects us regardless of where we are in the world. And that's probably the biggest hallmark, um, for, especially for people like us that are so widely dispersed right now. In terms of hallmark dishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or ingredients. Look, the Middle East shares a lot of its ingredients, um, but there are definitely... So if you want to start thinking, you know, what is Lebanese, what is Syrian, what is Palestinian, it's hard to delineate, but it's very easy to look at specific dishes and say, this is Palestinian. So ma'lube is a dish of rice and vegetables and meat or chicken that is cooked in a pot and then flipped, hence the name, which means upside down. Hmm. Um, Maftoul is also a very quintessential Palestinian dish. It's uh, bulgur grains that have been coated in flour and rolled and rolled until they resemble caviar-sized um, couscous, basically. Sakhran is another very traditional dish. And again, these vary based on where you go throughout the country. So in my father's village, the hallmark celebration dish is something called kubiniya, which is a bulgur and meat tartare, basically. In my mother's hometown, it's maftoul and msakhan. If you go to the West Bank, it's mansaf. And it's it's beautiful to see how, even within one country, the food culture can vary by region. Yeah. And you see how rich it is. And I'm sure there are, because there's so much overlap and because there's so many countries in such a small, you know, circumference area, there's probably a lot of misconceptions about Palestinian food. And I, it seems like that was part of the motivation of writing your book in the first place. Um, I mean, the Middle East in general, if... It was basically drawn out just a few decades ago. And before then, it was we were all part of a single entity under the Ottoman Empire. And you can stretch even before that to the Roman and Byzantine. And food culture doesn't develop in a vacuum. It's something that constantly evolves and it's dynamic. And you learn and you adapt from other people. And there's, it's easy. I write about this in the book, how much of our cuisine is influenced by Ottomans. Um, and if you look at the entire Levant region, you see how many of our dishes we share. But it's, it's also nice to recognize what dishes are unique to a culture, what dishes have been adopted from other cultures, and in a way to give credit where credit is due, which is what I try to do with this book. Yeah. Do you feel like, you, do you feel like there's certain misconceptions that you encounter like over and over and over again when you go out and talk about Palestinian food? I mean, look, there's... I guess the big elephant in the room, which is some people will say, oh, this is an Israeli dish, mm-hmm. or if that's what you're referring to. No, I, not at all. I mean, I don't have anything specific. There's no there's no elephants in this room, for <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm just, no, I'm just no, curious. No, but I'm saying in you, general, because that's a question I've been asked a lot in uh-huh. interviews, um, and I always give the same answer, which is Palestinians are so happy to share their food with everyone. And like I told you before, it's part of the hallmarks of a Palestinian table. I think when it comes to Israeli cuisine, the conf- the issues that we face with are a proxy for the conflict that we have. And this is where it comes to, you know, giving credit where credit is due. There's nothing wrong with adapting and learning from other cultures. Just say where that has come from. Yeah. Appropriation Appro- is the issue. <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. How have you personally used 
food and your book as a way of addressing those misconceptions? I think one thing is, if you notice, my book is not political at all. Right. And I think that disarms people very mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. And oftentimes, you're afraid of what you don't know. And once you get to know that person, you realize you don't have much to fear. You're also much more able to understand their story when you learn it on a more personal level. And I think this book has allowed people to get to know Palestinians, and in some cases to know me personally on that level. And that helps you understand who we are as a people, what we stand for, our issues, our conflict. And if it's not thrown at you with, you know, this is the conflict, this is what you need to know, but rather this is me as a person. I'm a mother, someone who cares about my child's future. You're also a mother or a father who cares about his kid's future. You see how much you have in common and you're able to get to know the person across the table from you and have a more productive discussion. Yeah. Um, Do you go back to Jerusalem to visit your family? (laughs) I do. I do. Actually, I mean, we shot the whole book there in Jerusalem. We try to visit at least once or twice a year. My parents come, and it's very important for me to keep my kids connected to where they're from. Mm -hmm. Has anything shifted in the relationship with your family, you know, for better or for worse, now that you... Are, are back in the kitchen or have <laughs> devoted yourself more or less to, to cooking full-time and writing about food? I think for my entire family, seeing our story, seeing, you know, my grandmother's mentioned in this book, different aunts, different, you know, the first picture when you open up is an aerial view of my father's hometown. And to see it on such a large scale, I think for everyone, it was very moving. Mm-hmm. Even for me, to this day, when I open up that book and I see that specific picture, it gives me goosebumps because I think this is where I came from. And this is such a small town, very, you know, very traditional, very old school in a way. And I've brought it here to, you know, the, to New York, to London, to the top of the world in a way. And it's, it's a beautiful feeling to see that. And I think it's, it's rubbed off on my family yeah. too. And it's such an amazing thing to be able to hold something in your hand and know that you know, your, your history and your legacy it's is here. here and, and it'll be there for my daughter. Exactly. Yeah. What recipes in the book are, are personally most meaningful to you? The stuffed chicken, probably not one of the easiest dishes to make, but it's a very emotional dish for me because growing up, it was always my favorite meal. It was what I ate at my grandmother's house on Fridays. Um, and after I left home, it became the dish that my mother made every time I came back. The first day I get back, that's what she makes. And to this day, she never makes that dish if I'm not home. Yeah, so I remember <laughs> her telling me that. She's like, I'm craving stuffed chicken, but I can't make it because you're not here. <laughs> she's like, you got to come home. I want to yeah. eat the chicken. <laughs> and I also try not to make it so much myself because it's tied to so many emotional you know, connections and to family that if I make it here, it just doesn't taste the same. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do your children have a favorite dish yet? Oh God. Or are they too young? No, it's not that. It's just my children are not good eaters. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which is so ironic, you know. It's well, I mean their mother's a cookbook writer, but they don't like to eat. Um, that might bre- change. They're pretty I young. Hope so. <laughs> but uh their bread is by far their favorite thing. They always say Ajin, Ajin, which means dough in Arabic. So mm-hmm. if my uh mother comes to visit, they want her to bake with them and it's their favorite thing to help me in the kitchen with. That's really sweet. Yeah. What are you working on now? Um, nothing concrete, but I would like to continue using food and writing to share our stories with the world. You know, it's, it's something that I realize I'm able to do. And with that ability comes a responsibility. Absolutely. And I feel like you probably have some secrets that you're (laughs) 
No, no secrets. I'm, I'm you're, so, trying, you're so ambitious and, and No, I'm focused. not trying to be intentionally vague. It's just, you know, these things, they take a while to, yeah. just like a good dish needs time to simmer on the stove. A lot of these ideas need time to simmer in your head before they... That is a very good metaphor. <laughs> become so, and as soon as there's something concrete, I'm... You'll be the first to know. Oh, great. Um, thank you. Well, let, well, tell us how to keep... Do you have an Instagram now? Is I do. there a way to keep in I touch? I finally have an Instagram. <laughs> uh, uh, it's just my name, reem.cassis. Uh, I have a website, Reem Cassis. I'm on Facebook. I'm not very active on social media. Um, I find that my time... Is, you know, I love to connect with people, and that's what social media is good for. So I'm there as much as I need to be, but you can always reach me. Well, I have looked at your Instagram, and the photos are beautiful. Thank you. Thank so you. keep it up. I will try. <laughs> um, Reem, thank you so much thank for coming you, on the this show today. A lot of fun. It was really a pleasure to have you, and thank you again for coming all the way to Philadelphia. From, from, <laughs> from Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Sorry, it's been a long day. <laughs> coming from Philadelphia, it's great to have you here. And thank you, Sarah. It's your been book a pleasure. is really, really beautiful. Thank so you. congratulations, and thank I'm excited you. to cook from it. And you know, we'll see what's next. Perfect. Thank you, my dear. Thank you all for listening to Food Without Borders. Check us out next week, same time, Wednesday, 6 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes, and you can also find us on Spotify and Stitcher. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.